Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Uh, I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. I'm uh, glad to be back home in uh, in this state and uh, looking forward to the study today. Joining me is Chase Byers from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, Joe. How you doing? It's good to have you back. And Jeff Smelser. Joe, the, the Facebook won't let us go live today. Um, so hang on, we'll start over. Let me go switch it to, uh, YouTube and let's start it over. Okay. Okay. All right. Last week it went just fine. I don't know if we've done one week or two weeks in a row now it's going fine, but we had problems for two or three weeks in a row and now it's acting up again. Welcome to uh, Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Uh, my name is Joe Works from Elmira, New York. Joining me uh, this afternoon, as usual, are Chase Byers and Jeff Smelser. Chase in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I will always get it right. Yeah, you know, I actually met a gentleman this past Monday and Tuesday from Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, yeah, two worlds collided. How about that? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Jeff in Exton, uh, PA, how are you? Great, and uh, we are online on YouTube today, and I hope people will be able to find us. I'll get a link posted on our Facebook page, and hopefully people will find us that way. Very good. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. I don't know if that's something from me or uh, elsewhere. Uh, but let's go ahead and begin our study this afternoon. Uh, we have three topics that are related and even related to last week's discussion of fellowship. Uh, last week we talked about fellowship, the meaning of that word and the biblical usage of it. Today we're going to talk about the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, and uh, how that ought to be uh, partaken of according to the scriptures, primarily focusing on the fruit of the vine. So we'll uh, start with that topic. Um, yep. Sounds what, good. Uh, have always uh, worshipped, or where you've grown up, how that, uh, how you partake of it. But there are different groups that have different ideas, not only from a practical vantage point where they attend, but even there are some doctrinal issues amongst the individuals who are genuinely seeking to do the right thing, but there's some questions about how it ought to be uh, observed. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we are to observe, how we are to partake of uh, the fruit of the vine, the grape juice. And so what are some, what are some different possibilities then uh, that you all could think of? Just real quick, everybody, I, this feedback, I'm not really sure where it's coming from. Does does anyone have their volume? I'll tell you what. I will mute my microphone and we'll do a quick test. If it goes away, let me know. Then you'll know it's me. Yeah, it, it's you, Jeff. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So I'll come back on and do make a couple of adjustments here now. Is the feedback still gone or is it still there? Sorry. That's still there. Still there. All right. Uh, I'll mute myself. I'll make some uh, 
changes and see what I can do. You guys, um, go go ahead. All right. So, Chase, you have any uh, thoughts on that? what are some different ways that the uh, fruit of the vine can be partaken of or, or that you've heard of it being partaken of? Yeah, sure. Uh, and in different places and uh, depending on the specific denomination, uh, you'll see the frequency of how often you take the Lord's Supper has changed every now and then, but also the way in which they take it. Um, I've seen places that whenever you come into the building, if there's like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people, they will serve it in a little container. And on one half, you have the piece of bread in there. And then on the other half, you have the fruit of the vine. And so you can just peel back and you take it whenever everyone's taking it together. Uh, and other places I've seen, um, they use one cup. They have one container about the size of a pitcher of water, maybe, uh, you know, that you would use to serve at, 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 a, at a meal. And they'll fill that up partly with grape juice and they'll pass that around um, just using one container. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's the most common way that I've seen in different churches where they have a communion tray. Uh, it's got several holes in it and it's got individual little cups inside with grape juice on the inside for, to represent the Lord's blood. And uh, as everybody, as it goes around everybody, everyone takes an individual cup and then sets it back in the tray or hangs on to it throughout the service, um, depending on what their preference is. But those are about the three ways I've seen it right. um, are about like that. Yeah. What about you, Jeff, do you have any other, any, any other examples that you know of? You're muted, I think. I can't hear you, Jeff. Sorry, folks. I know, I know we're struggling today. If, if you're hopped on and listening, we're really sorry about all this. Yeah, we still can't hear you, Jeff. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I think those are the, uh, while, while Jeff is working on getting his uh, uh, speaking voice back there, um, uh, we'll uh, move on. Um, so I, I, those, those are the ways that I'm most familiar with. And from a biblical vantage point, I'll just say at, the, at, at this point, and I can certainly be corrected, uh, I don't have any problem with any of those. I don't know that we have a... Uh, a specific limitation in scriptures. And so if somebody, if a congregation feels that this is what's best for them, then uh, I, I don't think that we're limited in how that ought to be uh, observed. But there are some who would take a position that you have to use only one cup. And uh, I think that's something that's worth uh, examining and uh, seeing from the scriptures if that is something that is required, uh, that only one container be used. So maybe a couple of passages that I might go to. And Jeff, did it sound like you were back with us or no? Nope. nope. No. No. All right. So, well, uh, Joe, uh, so what do you have in mind? Where would this one cup idea come from um, in Scripture? Yeah. So looking at a couple of the passages in the uh, at the Passover, the Lord celebrating the last Passover with his disciples, um, uh, for example, in Matthew 26, um, in the beginning of verse 26, says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, it's my body. Then he took the cup, singular, 
gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so the fact that this text seems to uh, point to Jesus only using one cup have caused some out of deep reverence, I think, for wanting to follow just sure. scriptures, um, uh, have, they've drawn the conclusion then that we should only use one cup, uh, just as Jesus did in Matthew and in Mark's account, as as it seems to be portrayed there. But then, might encourage people to turn over to Luke's account and take a look at what Luke describes in actu- actually in more detail. So Matthew and Mark talk about the observance of the Lord's Supper, but it appears that Luke gives details that aren't included in Matthew and Mark, certainly not contradictory, as the gospel accounts often will add information that others leave out. Uh, so Chase, you want to read for us uh, verses 14 through uh, um, 20, please? Sure. All I've got is my Portuguese Bible. So no, no, I'm just, I'm kidding. Yeah. Luke twenty two fourteen. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Okay. So following the sequence of events here that are in more detail uh, than in verse 17, he takes the cup and divides it among them. Now, I think we would understand he's not literally dividing the cup. The cup isn't, you know, being broken apart. He's, when he's speaking of cup, and there's a word there, I think it's called metonymy uh, or something like that, that it's really, when he says cup, it's, what's inside the cup. It's being represented there by the phrase cup. I think most people would agree with that. I don't think that's controversial. The cup is not being divided. What's inside the cup is being divided amongst the disciples in verse 17. And then after that's divided amongst the disciples, then they partake of the bread, which represents Jesus' body in verse 19. And so the question then comes in, how did they divide that? I think the the logical conclusion and the only reasonable conclusion that I could come to uh, would be that they put that into individual containers. Uh, So there was a cup and then it was divided up as you might imagine, maybe a pitcher or something at the table. And you say here, divide this amongst yourselves. If you have, you know, at lunch, there's sweet tea or something there. And you say, Hey, divide this amongst yourselves. And everybody puts it in their own individual uh, containers was divided amongst themselves in verse 17. They eat the bread, and then they drink from the cup in verse 20. Uh, But the cup's already been divided up. But, Jeff, I think you're back with us now. Am I? Can you actually hear me? I can, without any uh, feedback even. Oh, wow. Okay. I I think apparently I just had a loose connection. 
Um, okay. Took a while to figure that out. Well, right. Well, I, I, I agree. It looks like in Luke chapter 22 when he says divide this amongst yourselves. I noticed uh, looking at this last night, the New American Standard says share it. That doesn't quite get the idea. There is a word for sharing or that's often translated sharing. We talked about it last week. It's the same word. Koine. About. Yeah, koineo is to share and uh, or to have communion with, but this is a different word. This is a word here that more often has the idea of dividing into parts. And uh, so it sounds like he says, divide this up. And then after that, he gives thanks and they partake of the bread. And then they take of the apparently already having been divided up cup. Uh, right. that's, that's the most natural way to read that. Right. Let me just play devil's advocate with you guys for just a second, um, because I have heard this take on it as well, that there are two cups that are being mentioned in this account. Uh, at Passover, there would have been four, if I'm not mistaken, drinkings of the fruit of the vine. And so I've, I've sometimes heard it argued that in verse 17, they're drinking a cup there, and then 19 through the rest of the text there is the Lord's Supper, bread, and the cup. And I don't know if, if, that, if you all have anything you want to say to that. But. So th- there, there are understandings of the Jewish traditions pertaining to the observance of the Passover feast, which was what had been going on here. Um, and, and those kinds of things can be valuable. Sometimes I think we make a mistake if we start with the rabbinical writings and what's written in the Talmud and wherever about those traditions and then try to do all of our interpreting of Scripture based on that. Sometimes I think I'm not even convinced that the traditions that we, all, we hear about are, are necessarily the traditions that were in place in the first century, but let's suppose they were in this instance. Nonetheless, in, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 17, I'm not sure what purpose there would be in mentioning a cup that has nothing to do with what the story's about right here at this point. At this point, it seems like he's, he's already, it, it, at this point, it seems like he's moving in to, talk, to instituting the Lord's Supper, I guess is what I'm trying to say. In, in fact, if you would take verse 17 and 18 there, certainly verse 18, he's talking about the same drink as verse 17, right? That he, that he has distributed, yeah. Right. And so in verse 18, he says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Compare that with Matthew's account in Matthew 26, uh, which we read there at the beginning, and where Matthew sort of speaks in shorthand. He doesn't talk about the the distribution before the bread. Luke does. And so that's a fact that the drink is distributed. But then the same phrase concerning that drink, of Luke 22, 17, and 18, I'll not drink of it again until, uh, uh, in, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the statement that's made in Matthew 26, 29, in relationship to his blood of the new covenant. And so whatever Luke 22, 17, and 18 is referring to is the same terminology in the parallel passage of Matthew, talking about Jesus's blood, not talking about the Passover, but talking about the Lord's Supper. Good point well made, Joe. Moving yeah, on into how, how the Lord's Supper was actually observed in the book of Acts, say, for example, uh, I'm going to turn to a passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, where it's not specifically 
uh, there describing the Lord's Supper, but it's talking about the number of disciples at that time, and, and it specifies the number of men as being 5,000. So if you assume there were roughly as number as many women as men, then you would assume that there were something on the order of 10,000 disciples at this time. And as we look at the accounts in the book of Acts, they were all with one accord in the temple, according to what the Bible says back in Acts chapter 2. Uh, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So it seems that at, at the beginning of the church, they would all come together, some 10,000 people in the grounds of the temple. And there was room to do that within the environs of Solomon's portico. Um, 10,000 people. Now you think about if we are going to suppose that Jesus meant to put a great deal of emphasis on one cup such that we are we're required to use one cup to eat the Lord's Supper, the, the, the arithmetic of this gets quite astonishing. For 10,000 people, if each one uh, has a quarter of a, an ounce uh, a piece. Now let me see if I can show this on screen. Uh, I happen to have a little thing of mouthwash here. Where'd you guys go? There you are. Okay, so this little thing of mouthwash, uh, it, of course, if I hold it right up to the lens, it looks very big, but you can see it's, it's not very big. That holds, um, I saw where it said it earlier today, that holds 0.8 fluid ounces. So a quarter of an ounce, well, 0.2 ounces would be a fourth of this. So about from the bottom to there. And so uh, a quarter would be just a little bit more, something like that. And that's similar to what a lot of people would, how much a lot of people would drink when they have the little cups. Well, if you have 10,000 people, <laughs> I see the note. <laughs> we have these, for you who are watching this, we're able to chat with each other and Joe cracked me up there. He's wanting to know who used his mouthwash for a webinar. <laughs> but nonetheless, if you had 10,000 people each uh, drinking that much, it would require almost a 20, to have one cup that would, that would be enough for everybody. It would be a 19 point, what was it? I got the math here somewhere, 19.53 gallons. So almost a 20 gallon uh, cup. My wife has these 20 gallon buckets that she uses for her livestock to water them. So you imagine a 20 gallon cup and then you imagine how long it would take to pass this. Uh, let's Assuming you could pass a 20-gallon. Yeah, assuming you could pass, it's full of this 20 gallons, you're going to pass it from one person to the next. Let's be very charitable. Let's be very optimistic and suppose that you could pass this. Uh, you could get a sip, and without dousing yourself as you tip this 20-gallon cup up and, and 10 gallons come sloshing out on you, you're going to manage to control it to the point that you only get a quarter of an ounce and get it down and pass it to the next person, you're going to do well to get that operation done in five seconds. If you allow five seconds per person, it would have taken 14 hours for all 10,000 of these people to drink the cup, uh, which really kind of destroys the, the idea that we see in Scripture of the, the disciples doing this together, that there's this shared aspect to this, which is symbolized by doing this together. Yeah. And, and to be fair, um, I, I want to present both sides just as equally. Um, if you look in 1 Corinthians 10, th this is one of the other places one would go. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, really starting in verse 16. 
is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, jump down a little ways to verse um, to verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Um, in the context of this, the different conversations I've had with those who are of the opinion we should be using one cup, they will emphasize what is being said in these verses about there's one cup mm-hmm. uh, here. We, and we're doing this together as well. The one cup is symbolizing our togetherness in this meal together. Um, and I, I can understand that. <clears throat> I can understand wanting to emphasize the importance of the togetherness of this meal. However, I think you might be pushing a point that Paul's not trying to make in this passage. Yeah. I'm afraid you're going to have to try and find that point somewhere else. Uh, but what are your all thoughts there? Well, I do see in this passage, there is a, a shared aspect. There's a unity that is being implied. One bread, one body uh, in verse 17, seeing that we who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, so he is emphasizing the idea of oneness. And I do think that that emphasis uh, is borne out in the way it's practically done in 1 Corinthians 11, where they are to take it together. But obviously in 1 Corinthians 10, he's not. And Joe, you made this point. I should let you make this point. No, you're doing fine. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Uh, well, you'll make it better than I did. You've already made the prior <laughs> points today better than I did. But uh, it, in, in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he says, uh, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? The body is the entire universal church. Um, and, and we can show that later on again in First Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, we all partake of one bread. So the emphasis is not upon the physical bread being one or, or the physical cup being one, because you can't have one cup for the entire body of Christ uh, to be using. Um, So the emphasis is upon the symbolism, the oneness that is symbolized, and that is practically acted out in our doing this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 34, or 33, after rebuking the Corinthians because they're not doing this together. That's one of the reasons. He says, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So the, the oneness of it is to, be, is to be communicated by doing it together, not by using one cup. Right? Yeah. Maybe just an additional thought there. And you, I think you explained that really well, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Um, nice, nice cover as you come in and do it better. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll only uh, try to complement it with uh, this thought. Uh, even looking at the pronouns, um, uh, uh, Paul is in a different location. He's obviously not in Corinth as he's writing to the Corinthians, but he's talking about we partake of this one bread. We drink of this one cup. Uh, and so they're not even in the same place. He's certainly not talking about a literal cup here. And also to make that point, the cup is not the communion of the blood of Christ. It's what's in the cup right. that represents that. Right. Um, uh, and so it goes back to what we were talking about in Luke 22 and, and other passages as well. It's not the cup that's being divided. It's what's inside the cup. It's not the cup that is the communion of the blood of Christ. It's what's inside the cup. Mm-hmm. So the, the, and I really appreciate 
somebody who is trying very hard to only do what God wants to do. Sure. But we have to, we have to understand that there is figurative language um, uh, used in this text, like it is in other places. Um, you know, sometimes there are religions who will take the bread and say that it literally becomes the body of Jesus. Uh, you know, trans, what, what's the transubstantiation. Thing? There you go. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, what we have to do is understand that that's, that that's not the case. For one, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body. Well, his body was right there. They weren't really partaking of his body because he was there. Right. So we understand then that that's figurative language um, for the bread representing his body or for the cup representing his blood. But it's not the cup. It's what's inside the cup that is representing that. Um, and, and, well, right Jason, yeah, yeah, and, and while we're here in First Corinthians in chapter eleven, Jeff brought part of this up earlier. Um, I think it's helpful to see this is the area where Paul is going to be correcting uh, some of the problems the Corinthians are having with the Lord's Supper. Uh, look at some of the things that he's accusing them of in First Corinthians eleven twenty. He says, "Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating." Each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And so he, he's addressing the problems right out of the gate. What you're doing isn't even the Lord's Supper. There's some people getting drunk. There are some people who don't even have it. Uh, and he's saying, you're just treating it like a common meal. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? And uh, we won't take the time to read it, but in 23 through 29, Paul is – he recalls um, from Luke's account what the Lord Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed about the Lord's Supper, as Joe read for us earlier. But I want us to look at, at that verse 34 again, uh, verse 33 and 34, when Paul says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Um, and so Paul is saying you need to wait on one another to partake of this meal. The point I'm trying to get at is they're bringing their own suppers. Paul points that out in verse 21. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem to be the problem. No. Uh, that's that's not the problem. They're bringing their own supper to remember this, but they're not remembering it correctly. Right. Paul addresses how to remember it correctly, but he doesn't condemn them or say anything about, well, you shouldn't be using multiple containers. In fact, what he's saying is, Share your Lord's Supper with somebody who doesn't have the Lord's yeah. Supper. Yeah, he, he does rebuke them for not being considerate of one another. I brought mine, you don't have any, well, that's your problem. So he rebukes them for that, but it's not that they brought their own that, that he's rebuking them. It's not that he's insisting there has to be at the meeting place a common um, supper, a common bread and common fruit of the vine or already there. There's nothing wrong with each saint bringing what he needs for this and then partaking of it together. It's that they were doing so without regarding each one, each one. As he says in verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes before his other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Um, so they were making a, a mockery of the whole thing. Right, right. Yeah, and, and maybe just to add to that, again, just as we're just going through these passages, talking about the uh, uh, 
the cup and the, the Lord's Supper, uh, again, look at the terminology in verses 25 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, I understand that he says, drink. Well, Jeff Rose. He really thinks that they were drinking the cup. They were drinking from the cup. It's the way that we use our language, and that's perfectly allowable. But, but they're not really drinking the cup. The cup isn't what's going down their throat. It's what's inside the cup. And so whenever we read the word cup in, in these passages, we should have in our minds, he's talking about the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. It's not the cup that's special, but it's what's inside that cup that we are drinking. I don't know if I said that very well. Very well. You said it very well. Um, but to me, that, it took me a little while to get over this thought uh, when I was first challenged with this idea of whether we should have just one container for the uh, to, to remember the Lord's Supper. It seemed on the surface to be very uh, valuable and uh, maybe even following the scriptures more carefully to only have one container until we begin to examine what does that container really, every time we read that word cup there, it's not talking about the physical container. It's talking about what's inside. And, and, and to be clear, I, I don't think any of us would say it's wrong to use one cup. Absolutely I, I not. I worshiped in a number of congregations where they did only use one cup. And, uh, and I'm sure that you all have also. Um, and I don't object to that when that's what brethren in some congregations sure. do. But what we're trying to show is the, the Bible is not requiring one cup as opposed to multiple cups. And practically speaking, in larger congregations, uh, certainly in the situation where you had 10,000 saints in the Church of Jerusalem, it's just a practical impossibility to use one cup for everybody. Right, right. And uh, we're not on Facebook, so people can't make comments uh, live with us. But certainly if anybody has any comments that they would like to add, um, you know, questions, disagreements, um, we are certainly not the truth, but we're trying to study the truth. Uh, please feel free to contact us, reach out to us, and uh, be more than interested in hearing uh, other viewpoints, uh, counterpoints in particular. Um, uh, I'm, I'm open to, to learning, uh, certainly. So uh, if, if you have that opportunity, please feel free to, to reach out to us on that. Maybe I have anything else on that topic. No, where do, where do we go from here, Joe, with the discussion today? Let's see if I can have a segue here. What we're talking about are people who, at least for the most part, are sincerely and genuinely interested in pleasing the Lord in how we worship him. And I, I admire, I appreciate, and I commend that for people that are questioning multiple containers or one container. Um, that's a good thing. So what about then... There's a phrase that has come up in the news a little bit lately of Easter worshipers. Um, and it seems like maybe as, as I have listened to those statements. Um, um, Joe, I, I want to interrupt you only because we have a comment relating to the last oh. uh, discussion. Sure. So I'm sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. No, that's it, good. Yeah. It says, what about filling the cup once it gets empty? 
Would they have done that when they were partaking in the Lord's Supper with 100 plus people? Is the question we have there. Yeah. So, so if you have 100 plus people, sure, you, it would be a practical possibility for 100 people to partake of the cup. Uh, still need to be a pretty good sized cup. Uh, and then refill it in the next 100 people. Um, but it, it, there'd be nothing wrong with doing that. It's, but the thing about that is, uh, practically speaking, once you get to, say, 100 or a couple hundred people, um, you are now drawing this out so that it's getting further and further removed from people doing this together. But more important than that, if the purpose is to say we only want to use one cup, then now we're using one cup, but the, the cup has been refilled. So we really are putting the emphasis on the container rather than the contents. Uh, and so, and, and then once you get to the situation in the church at Jerusalem, um, where you had 10,000 people and we're going to uh, what a hundred people and then refill it. And then a hundred people, you're still talking about it requiring some 14 hours to do this. Yeah. And technically we're still talking about multiple containers. I understand we're still talking about one, but with the constant refilling, yeah. you're still, it's technically the same. Unless, unless you containers. absolutely make the physical container uh, the, the issue. It's not even whether it's got the fruit of the vine in it or not. It's the fact that this plastic cup or this stone cup or, or this metal cup is the same one that the brethren six hours ago used. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's just not the, the point of emphasis You you might even be able to see that perhaps in the thought of when we're talking about blessing the cup in 1 Corinthians 10, is it blessing the cup that that, holds enough for 100 people, or is it blessing the container that they came from? You've got two containers now. Um, if, if, If we're talking about the physical container, then we're no longer with one container there or one cup. Um, but my point would be that we're not talking about the actual vessel itself anyway in each of those passages. We're talking about what's inside. So to to answer that question, that's certainly something that would be permissible. It's just not required according to these passages. Maybe we're beating a dead horse at this point, but to make a point similar to what you said earlier, I think, Joe, in Matthew 26, 27, he took the cup. All right, so we're going to, if we suppose the emphasis on the cup, let's look at it. He took the cup, gave thanks, gave to them, said, drink ye all of it. Well, the of it suggests he's talking about the contents of the cup, and obviously the drinking does. But then he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He took the cup and said, this is my blood. He took the cup and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for many. He took the cup and he talked about what was inside the cup. So he took the cup, but the cup is all about what's inside the cup. That's, exactly. that's where the emphasis is. It. Yeah, good good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, well, well, great. So let's uh, use that as a segue then for people who are sincerely searching. There's a phrase that has come about in the media recently from what I perceive to be just some careless wording. Uh, the phrase is Easter worshipers. Um, the those that suffered at the hands of the terrorists uh, in Sri Lanka um, were uh, 
to come together on what is religiously called Easter Sunday, and they were worshiping. And so people, some people have, uh, politicians in particular have said, um, uh, that referred to them as Easter worshipers. I think what they meant was that they were worshiping on this perceived as a religious holy day, Easter. Um, but then others have come back and said, no, we don't worship Easter, so we're not Easter worshipers. And, and certainly that's right. I make all kinds of faux pas in my terminology, so I'm a bit more forgiving of others when they say things in imprecise ways. Um, but it did get me thinking about, are there perhaps some people who are Easter worshipers? And is there some way that we can, in our discussion this afternoon, help them to think differently in that? So what I mean by Easter worshipers are people who come together only for specific religious holidays. Often church buildings have a larger attendance on the last Sunday of December and uh, around the Easter holiday. Um, so during Christmas and, and Easter, there will be more people that will come than come the other 50 weeks out of the year. Uh, and so what might be the reason for that? And is that something that's acceptable? Uh, how should we view that biblically? Yeah, and just real quick, let, let me do this. I've got my King James Version out, and if I look in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, I'm going to read the following. And when he had apprehended him, Peter being arrested, it says he put him in prison and delivered him to four quad, uh, quad, quad Oh, my goodness, I can't pronounce that word, guys. <laughs> Quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, if you're reading from a modern translation of the New Testament, ESV, New American Standard, CEB, NIV, you're not going to find Easter anywhere in the New Testament. But if you go to the KJV, this is the one place the word Easter is. And Jeff, do you care to, to elaborate on yeah. why? So I, the, the question as to why the King James has it is, is a little bit of a mystery. We can speculate a little bit. Maybe somebody knows precisely, but let's first of all just get the facts in front of us. You're right. This is the word that is elsewhere, otherwise translated Passover. It's the same word as in Luke 22, verse 1, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. The word in Greek is Pascha, and that's the word that we see in Acts chapter 12, verse 4. It's, it's always translated Passover, except here. Um, it doesn't, at this time, uh, the idea of an annual observance an Easter observance didn't even exist yet. That's something that developed later on. Uh, it's a reference not to the Christian observance of the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. It's a reference to the Jewish Passover feast, and Herod is going to keep Peter till after that to put him to death. He's not concerned about the observance of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, the, I'll just say a little bit more quickly here. I don't want to drag this out too long. There's a, uh, I'll, I'll skip that. I'll skip that. The speculation uh, as to why the King James might say Easter here is by the time the King James translation is made in 1611, you have the Anglican church and they had all of these rituals. And of course, Easter is a big deal in the Anglican church. And so maybe what the translators were doing, they're thinking we're in the book of Acts. We're now talking about the Christian era 
And so Christians observe Easter. Easter is at about Passover time. That's not a coincidence um, because Easter is meant to, it's not a biblically originating idea, but it is meant to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Well, Jesus was raised on the third day after he was crucified. He was crucified the day after the evening before when he ate the Passover supper. So it's not a coincidence that each year Easter on our calendars and Passover fall together. That was true in the Anglican church. They get to this passage. It talks about Passover, but the Anglican church kept Easter. And so presumably that's why they suck Easter in here. And, and as you pointed out, what it's used like 29 times in the New Testament, and every other time it's translated Passover. Um, so it's it's unfortunate translation. Very uh, unfortunate. Yeah, um, misleading. Um, but it, it seems pretty obvious, particularly from the text uh, that we're talking about, the, the Passover uh, event, you ties it together with the Days of Unleavened Bread in verse 3 even. And I'll add this, the, the word, the Greek word is Pascha, and it comes from Hebrew by way of Aramaic. The, the Aramaic word, and I'm not sure how to pronounce Aramaic, but best I understand would have been Fashka. And so then to Greek, and it becomes Pascha. Well, the Aramaic word Fashka comes from a Hebrew word that is the Hebrew word that was used in Exodus chapter 12. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, so what it is, it's just the Greek representation of the Jewish word for Passover. Right. In Spanish, it is uh, La Pascua. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my Portuguese Bible, too. Uh, yeah. So, um, my big Latin Bible, it's, I know. <laughs> guys can speak all these languages. <laughs> uh, listen, you, you're, you're our Greek scholar, so that's great. Um, so... Understanding then that Easter, the word Easter is really not a part of a, a legitimate translation in the scriptures. It's not a part of, of the, of the uh, observances that are instructed in the scriptures. As you pointed out, Jeff, it was a holiday that was invented later on. Why is it that our attendance, generally speaking, I mean, I'm speaking in very general terms, Attendance grows at Christmas and Easter. Is there such a thing as Easter worshipers? Um, and, and how how ought that to be uh, dealt with, uh, for lack of a better question? I, I think the easy answer off the top of my head is, well, no. In Scripture, there were not Easter worshipers. There were worshipers. There were worshipers of, of God, of, of Jesus. Um, and that's quite simple, you know, I, I see in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I, it's the where, why, why it happens. The best I can imagine is it's, it's a holdover from Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, you have these high holy days, Christmas, Christ Mass, and Easter. And of course, you have before Easter in the Catholic Church, you have uh, Palm Sunday, and then you have um, Maundy, Maundy Thursday, I think is that how you say it, and then Friday is Good Friday, and those all are special days. They associate them with events in the week before Jesus was crucified, but they make a lot, have a lot of ritual around them, and then you get to Sunday, and it's Easter Sunday. So you have these high holy days in the Catholic Church, then you get to the Reformation. Well, in some of the Protestant churches that come out of the Catholic Church or protest against it, 
I think of the Lutherans, you still see a lot of emphasis put on those same things. And so you have a lot of people, both from Protestant and Catholic backgrounds, who are accustomed to seeing a great deal of emphasis put on those two days every year as a religious thing. And so they attach more significance to the Sundays associated with Easter or the time of year associated with Christmas than they do any other first day of the week. But you don't see that distinction being made in the Bible. And so would, would passages like Matthew 15 or Mark 7, traditions of men versus the Word of God, perhaps be applicable here, um, something that's not revealed in Scripture, uh, worshiping on these two days, takes great priority in some families, while what we see in Scripture are Christians meeting together on an extremely regular basis, Often we talk about a weekly basis, but really, when we study the book of Acts, they got together often. In Acts 2, daily. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, narrowing it down to just two special days that aren't even talked about in the scriptures really seems to be missing the mark of wanting to be pleasing to God and wanting to follow after His Word. Mm-hmm. When people come on those two days, I wish that they would just decide to worship God as he's prescribed all of the other weeks as well, mm-hmm. all the days as well. Amen. Um, so from that vantage point then, uh, Easter often being um, viewed as a day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Does the Bible speak in in those terms of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus or recognizing the resurrection of Jesus at all? There is the hint in 1 Corinthians 11 in connection with the Lord's Supper. I say hint. I guess it would be better to say there's an implicit acknowledgement of a belief in the resurrection and expectation of the Lord's coming again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. So we're proclaiming the Lord's death. That's especially the focus of the Lord's Supper, but we're doing so until he come, in which sense there is an implicit acknowledgement of an expectation that he's been been raised from the dead, therefore coming back. Mm -hmm. And how does that fit then in... Easter is on our calendars, uh, you know, on this Sunday that's tied to the, the Jewish calendar of, of Passover, uh, which would make it about the time that that, that would fit to the, the time of year that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. We know that from the, the fact that the, it was during the Passover that, that those events happened to Jesus. Um, but making that significance on a Sunday what about uh, maybe jumping to Revelation 1 and seeing that phrase uh, John talking about on the Isle of Patmos, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Right. Um, often that phrase Lord's Day is used by people today to talk about the first day of the week. He doesn't identify it in Revelation 1 as the first day of the week, but is there a reason to draw that conclusion? Sure, the Lord's day would be his victory day, and, and the first day of the week, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of emphasis in the New Testament. Each of the Gospels makes a point of, of noting that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. 
it appears that the the first time uh, he appeared to the disciples on the day he was raised would have been the first day of the week. And then eight days later, he appears to them again, to the apostles all gathered together. Eight days later, the way they counted time, I would understand that to be the next first day of the week. We would tend to say seven, but they counted the day on which they were starting and the day on which they ended when they were counting that way. And then the church is established on apparently the first day of the week. Um, and so uh, then when you think about Jesus being raised on the third and spending 40 days teaching, uh, 43 days from 50, it looks like Jesus ascended on the first day of the week. Right. Uh, moreover, in First Corinthians chapter 16, you see evidence that Christians were assembling on the first day of the week. They'd lay by in store on the first day of the week. Um, all of that points to a, a great deal of emphasis on the first day of the week. Why? Well, that's Jesus' victory over death. He, he came to bring to naught him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How did he do that? He did that by conquering death, by being raised from the dead. What day did he do that? The first day of the week. So what day is that? That's the Lord's day. Exactly. Might we also, and, and maybe you all don't agree with this, but I'll, I'll throw this out as an idea, uh, the reference there in Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. My mind is immediately drawn to Psalm 118, um, uh, and I'll begin in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The day that Jesus became the chief cornerstone seems to be the resurrection uh, maybe I'm making too much out of that, but it seems like that's a logical, at least a reasonable conclusion. It may not be the only one. Uh, you know, obviously every day is the Lord's day. God is the creator and sustains the earth. Every day is the Lord's day. But Psalm 118 is speaking about a particular day, some special day that the Lord has made. It seems like that's referencing the, the resurrection of Jesus when he was proven to be the chief cornerstone. Um, so that's a that's my thought process there, and and that would only just uh, go along with all of those observations that you made, Jeff, for the first day of the week in the New Testament. And and then just to bring that to a conclusion and full circle back to the Lord's Supper, this expression "Lord's Day." It's kind of an unusual expression, but it's the same kind of expression as we see in Lord's Supper. And it makes perfect sense the Lord's Supper belongs to the Lord's Day. And that's what we see is the disciples coming together to break bread, eat the Lord's Supper, on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, putting those two things together in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, not because it was a certain time of year, but it's this day, the first day of the week. Exactly. Well, we are out of time. Uh, we've probably gone a few minutes over, but started a few minutes late as well. So uh, thank you both, Jeff and Chase, for your participation this afternoon. It certainly made uh, my topic uh, much easier. And uh, Lord willing, we will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Uh, on Facebook or YouTube or somewhere. Uh, we will we'll try to uh, present these studies. And again, we welcome any comments at all. Um, that would be helpful for us in our own studies. Thank you. Thanks, guys.